Welcome to the Refinitive Sustainability Perspectives podcast, where our goal is to engage and inform our audience from investors to asset managers and portfolio managers to sustainability leaders and those involved in ESG and sustainable finance. This is Kisa Shreen. Green bond issuance accelerated in 2020, reaching an all-time record of $76.5 billion. Now, driven by an increase in capital raising by sovereigns, multilaterals, and banks for COVID-19 relief and recovery efforts, the sustainability and social bond categories each surpassed $30 billion for the second consecutive quarter. Yet many questions still remain in this area, and one of them is measuring green bond premium pricing. To give us insight into this is Uf Erlinson, Executive Chair of Anthropocene Fixed Income Institute. Uf, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's very nice to be, to be back and discuss these uh, really interesting topics. So let's start off with what are the main challenges when it comes to pricing sustainability bonds versus conventional bonds? So there is a really core sort of difference in how investors see this and how issuers see this. Uh, obviously, we have the perspective that people are issuing bonds. They want to issue the bonds at, as, at the lowest possible spread or yield. So they want to pay as little as possible. However, that has the other side to it, that the fact that the investors, they want to see as high a yield as possible. Uh, and that becomes quite interesting in the green bond space or sustainable bond space where investors w would like to claim that they're not giving up returns. And, you know, issuers of these bonds, they want to claim that they are actually finding um, cheaper financing. So it has some really interesting uh, implications of, of, of that uh, basic uh, uh, difference of opinions. And Uf, we also talk a bit about, or, or you discuss the concept of non-stationary green bond spreads. We know that data can be non-stationary. So what exactly makes a green bond premium non-stationary? Is this related to trends that may not be anticipated, such as what we would look at with a with non-stationary data? Yeah, it's it's uh, perhaps a little bit uh, geeky, but it's really uh, an interesting econometrics uh, problem that has real implications for your how, how you try to measure this. So to start with, we would assume that all bond prices or bond spreads are essentially non-stationary. They follow more or less random walks, um, which makes it hard to predict where bond spreads are going to be, you know, uh, a week ahead or a month or a year ahead. Um, but this also then becomes an issue when you look at the green bond premium, because what we define as the green bond premium is really what's the difference in the price or the, the spread of a bond that is green vis-a-vis -vis if it hadn't been green. So you essentially try to compare the bond spread of the green bond versus the non-green bond and say something uh, hopefully intelligent around that. Now, the problem here and where non-stationarity comes in is the fact that if both of these bonds, so the traditional bond and the green bond, have non-stationarity in terms of their spreads, their time series, then you get into some econometric uh, difficulties uh, around measuring that. Uh, and that can be a little bit tricky. And I think we've seen in the literature that people have come up with some results that aren't entirely uh, correct when it comes to 
some of the econometric conclusions you can draw from it. Um, and, and in particular, uh, uh, there is something called super consistency, which tends to be that you, you, you try to measure the green bond premium and you get extremely uh, accurate results. Um, you get very small standard errors in that. And, and that's a typical feature of non-stationary data. And unfortunately, that has made you know, a number of studies, I think, draw uh, two strong conclusions on uh, that there is a green pr bond premium and uh, how that actually looks. Um, and and we, you know, we, we, we have tried to look at it a little bit further. So that really, I think, leads very seamlessly into uh, um, when you talk about looking at the green bond and the difference in the spread if the bond is green versus if it hadn't been green. We're hearing more about a concept introduced by Germany called the green twin bond. And the rationale behind this construct is to make sure that the issuance of green bonds don't negatively impact liquidity in German government bonds. So do you expect the green twin bond, the theory and the concept to work? And why should this concept be adopted globally? And please feel free to talk more about what this is and how this is um, being unfolded in Germany now. Yeah, so so we wrote the paper back, uh, back in the summer where we made an analysis of um, how we think you should look at, you know, the green bond premium from an econometric uh, perspective, and it involves all these things, you know, co-integration and vector error correction models and everything. But the basic preset uh, that you have in that investigation is that it's very hard to find this sort of identical twin bond that you can, can compare your green bond with in order to find this, you know, difference in price that we try to measure in there. Um, so hence, you know, we actually called uh, the, the paper even uh, a twin bond approach um, on, on what we did there. Now, lo and behold, in August, Germany, the, the, the German Treasury goes out and issues uh, what they're calling a twin bund. So they have two bonds, one which is green and one which is non-green, and then they have identical structural features and they have exactly the same maturity, the same coupon and all of these other things that make otherwise uh, bonds different from each other. Um, and that gives us really a perfect laboratory in order to measure, you know, are there other statistical properties or other properties of the green German Bund vis-a-vis uh, -vis the traditional Bund? And they are really what we call the identical uh, identical twins um, and 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 that will give us going forward the opportunity to measure uh, the difference in characteristics between uh, the green instrument and the non-green instrument in, in in a way that hasn't been possible before so let's talk a bit about the risk return ratios and can risk return ratios reconcile that conflict that you talked about a little earlier between issuers and investors they both have different desires right yeah it's it's uh, uh it's a rather interesting question and you know i've been in the green bond space for a long time and it's always uh, entertaining to see these conferences where you have issuers on the one side claiming you know the lower cost of finance through the green bonds uh, and then the investors on the other side saying that they're not definitely not foregoing any return because they are, uh, you know, buying the green uh, green bonds. And it's it's just not intellectually coherent to to claim both at the same time. 
if you're looking at only the return dimension because you know once uh, one make is uh, one making one more dollar is going to make someone else lose another dollar um, however how you can reconcile this is uh, if we can see a situation where the green bonds actually have lower volatility than uh, the traditional bonds now start out and thinking about you know modern portfolio theory and everything that we know we learned in finance 101 and you will realize that people are not you know buying a return they're buying a risk return so you take the return and then you divide it by some sort of measure of volatility hence you can you know like an asset with a four percent return uh, and a two percent volatility in the same way that you you know like an asset with five percent return and two and a half percent volatility because the the risk return ratio is or the return risk ratio is two in both of those cases so you're almost indifferent between the two um so this gives us a little bit of a, of, of a thinking uh, when we look at something like the german green bund for example the german green bund came at a spread which was one basis point around one basis point lower than the traditional uh, German uh, bond that is out outstanding there. Um, so one basis points here is 0.01%. So quite a small difference it might seem but important for fixed income investors. Now if it is the case that the green instrument also has a slightly lower volatility then it's quite okay for the investor to have bought that because you know they had a less volatile portfolio from buying that 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 bond, although they had a slightly lower lower return as well. And the thing here that it comes down to is we can start measuring and looking at you know the risk dimension. Do green bonds have lower risk, lower volatility than the traditional bonds? And does that stand in in sort of proportion to you know how much? lower their potential uh, yield or spread is vis-a-vis -vis the traditional instrument. Um, and, and I think this 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 takes its, the analysis about, around the green bond premium uh, to the next uh, to the next level. So that's an interesting question. How can how can we determine, how can an investor determine that, yes, in fact, that this green bond that I'm looking at or that I'm thinking about has, in fact, a lower volatility than traditional bonds? Aren't we at a bit of a disadvantage because green bonds are so new? So how are we looking at historical precedent to make that assumption? Or what factors do we need to think through when we want to figure out whether this green bond or this group of green bonds has a lower volatility and a lower risk? So this is this is actually you know, uh, apologize again for getting slightly on the geeky side, but uh, this Let's is quite geeky. interesting. Let's get geeky. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'll, I'll throw you back into the finance courses you took at uh, uh, at university. But yeah, um, the, the fact is that from an econometric or statistical standpoint, we're much better at measuring volatility than we are at measuring uh, returns. So there are quite good forecasting models for volatility, for example, but they are fairly useless when it comes to forecasting returns. So if I make a model that you know, predicts uh, S&P 500 uh, volatility, I can do that quite well, but I'm very bad at building an econometric or statistical model that predicts you know, uh, stock or the S&P 500 return over a certain uh, period of time. 
and volatility all gives much richer data to analyze and you don't have the same issues of non-stationarity as you have in in the usual what we call the levels regressions um, so if we do uh, some of the investigations around green bonds and particularly with the case that we have so little data on green bonds um, it's actually quite an advantage to use the volatility dimension uh, and start measuring things from there uh, and it seems like the models might be very difficult. Uh, there's uh, a whole set of models called uh, autoregressive conditional heteroscedasticity, ARCH and GARCH, um, and you know people might uh, remember them, but they're they're not actually that complicated. And you can use them, you can estimate them on something like the German Green Bund to get a number out and say, you know, does the German Green Bund actually have lower volatility than uh, the traditional bond? And I think this is super interesting because it gives us a really good analytical tool set to determine are green bond uh, investors actually being rational in terms of buying sometimes what seems to be a lower yielding instruments. Uh, and, 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 and it also is there's another really cool point about this. Uh, it gives um, a good argument for issuers as well as policymakers to say that, you know, we think that the volatility, we can make the volatility lower in the green bonds that we issue uh, or that are out there and hence we can also support the fact that they can have you know lower spreads and then they get us to be this cheaper cost of financing because we reduced volatility so everyone's happy and uh, you know i like that so let's talk more about that can policymakers actually reduce volatility because if that's the case if we have all of these levers that we can sort of pull if you will to reduce the risk of of green bonds then what are we waiting on so can policymakers do they have that in their toolkits where they can actually reduce risk and how is that the case so I'll, I'll, I'll take the liberty to be, become a little bit self-reflective uh, here. Um, and, you know, back in mid-March, I actually wrote an article um, where I said that uh, when others are fearful, be greeny. Um, and what I meant by that was essentially we saw that green bonds, as well as a lot of other bonds, were, you know, spreading out, going much, much wider. Yields were going up and prices falling. Uh, in the midst of the COVID uh, disaster, or you know, in the in the start of this this whole lengthy process. Now, I made the argument then that I thought that you know policy institutions like you know um, in Europe we have the European Investment Bank or something called the Nordic Investment Bank, which are these sort of supranational institutions. But you know, policy-making institutions they should be countercyclical. They should go into the market and buy good assets, such as green bonds, in the midst of market volatility. Uh, and by doing so, they could actually quite significantly reduce the volatility, both the realized and the expected volatility on things like green bonds that we want to see more of. Um, and and that's, that's, that's a, a pretty strong argument I think where, where where they could really be of some use in this market to, to be to be some sense of you know buyers of last resort of the green assets specifically uh, that will give uh, the attractiveness of holding green assets to investors will you know increase manifold uh, and and that should also lead to lower cost of financing when it comes to to the green side 
So it sounds like what you're describing right now is the aspiration. So we aspire to the point where these policymaking institutions will go into the market and kind of buy these good assets, quote unquote, if you will. Um, where are we right now? If that's the aspiration, where are we right now? And what is the, the spread between where we are now and that aspirational goal? And what do we need to do to get there? Um, so, you know, right now, uh, in general, you know, I, the, there's, a, I think, a consensus that in, there's a little bit of a price premium or green bond premium in the market, but it's not, it's not very big, but there is some evidence uh, to, that, to that extent. Even um, I, I try to find that and using even the more complicated econometrics. But what I really want to convey and, you know, what made me you know, jump uh, a little bit around in March, but I also think we should look at going forward is to look at green bonds, not only as, you know, some sort of allocation instrument, but also a trading instrument where people can be pro-cyclical. Uh, you know, if people would have followed my recommendations, uh, and I know how many did, not a lot, I, I think, but back in mid-March, uh, you would have made out like a bandit on those trades. I mean, if you go in and buy green assets at the, the downturn of the market, and then you sit with them until you're in the bullish part of the, the cycle, which you know we are right now, it's going to be good economics for whoever who, who does it. Uh, but but that, that, that's really something I want to incentivize. I want to see, you know, the sustainable investing as the remit of active managers, active traders who go out and are there to be counter-cyclical and maybe also even sell off some of their assets and, and, and you know, when, when they're being too expensive, etc. Uh, but that's how we grow the market really and get, you know, end investors as well really excited because if you can outperform massively using green bonds as your sort of beta factor, and then then uh, there is no question that's going to be very popular with end investors. So, oof, this was fantastic. If we just go back to basics as we started in the in the show, whether you're dealing with green bonds or whether you're dealing with traditional bonds, this fact remains issuing bonds at lowest possible spread yield versus on the issuer side versus investors who want um, as high as high a yield as possible is something that we're dealing with on either side, whether traditional or green bonds. Um, secondly, really appreciate the insight behind the twin, green twin bonds, and really looking at it from the standpoint of looking at green and non-green bonds with the same maturity, with the same coupon, and really using that use case as a laboratory, if you will, to measure properties and to really measure the different characteristics between the two. And then finally, understanding how we can find the opportunity to have lower volatility with green bonds than traditional bonds, policymaking institutions having a, an important role there, and really looking at green assets as a trading instrument so we can look at the incentives behind sustainability investing. Oof, Erlinson, thank you so very much for your time and for joining us. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. We invite you to subscribe to the Refinitive Sustainability Perspectives podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your content. What did you think about the podcast? Leave us a review on iTunes or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for updates on our show. You can even check us out on YouTube now. Thank you for joining. See you next time.